I really am a big fan. I've had some really good cheesesteaks in Philly, to be completely honest. Um, Is that code word for like... Washington, Washington, six foot eight weighs a fucking ton. Opponents beware, opponents beware. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Let me lay it on the line, he had two on the vine. I mean two sets of testicles, so divine. On a horse made of crystal, he patrolled the land. With the mason ring and schnauzer in his perfect hands. Here comes George, in control. Women dug his snuff and his gallant stroll. Eight opponents' brains. And invented cocaine. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Washington. Hello and welcome to the POTUS Life Podcast. I'm Ryan Markley. With me is my co-host and uh, tour guide, official Valley Forge tour guide, Justin Zinga. Hey, Justin. What's up? It's great to be here. So you took a little, you took a little trip this week. You went to Valley Forge, huh? I did. Two weeks, uh, well, more like a couple weeks ago, but I have seen what we're about to talk about in depth. That's pretty dope. I I've ate their jealous. Asian fusion cuisine. I've had their Philly cheese steaks. I've seen the statues and you know, it was a lot of fun. Right on. That's really cool. I uh I'm definitely jealous that you got to go. I I want to do that at some point. We need to do another Valley uh, Forge National Park would be National Park. Valley Forge National Park would be a great fall trip because oh, yeah i saw i saw gray and then like there's nothing living and it was kind of depressing but it would be pretty beautiful in the fall should, should we take a fall. should we take a podcast lovers rendezvous in the fall I'm dtf for that <laughs> but oh there, there's one one thing i will say yeah is that directly adjacent to valley forge national park is Valley Forge Casino and Resort, which is kind of ironic because George Washington was frightened of gambling. <laughs> it's all good. That's awesome. That's that is ironic. I like that. Yeah, didn't get around to that, but uh did see some sweet statues and took a trip to Philadelphia and Saw the Liberty Bell, which is fucking pathetic. It's a pathetic artifact that it's a it's a cracked here. bell. It it's a bell. It's it only cracked. like a two thousand pound hunk of copper that you can't even that was incorrectly engineered walk up to. It's in its own building. You like stand in line to walk up to this window to look at it. <laughs> like you can't even take a picture. Put that stupid thing in a museum. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Saw Independence Hall, um, the Rocky Steps, which I take. I have a picture there. I ran there in the morning one time. I, I I ran like five miles to get to it. I walked up it, got winded, <laughs> walked back down, got into an Uber, and was traveling in an Uber for forty minutes with somebody who insisted on listening to techno. And I gave him one star and no tip. And if you're listening, fuck you. 
I would like to think he's listening, but he's probably not listening. That's the, whatever. That's the reality of our situation. He could be. He could be. Maybe there's that guy. That kissed- hey, I didn't think we were going to talk about that. I'm probably going to cut most of that out. Oh, I think you should keep most of that in. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm done with the innuendos here. Oh, Ryan, you need to watch the movie Adore on Netflix. Okay, copy that. What's it about? Robin Wright, Naomi Watts, fuck each other's sons. It's oh, the Lonely Island and Justin Timberlake's mother lover song made into <laughs> a movie that's like supposed to be an artsy fartsy independent film. It's hilarious. Okay, yeah, it's great. I'll check it out. What hot door? dudes too? Lots of chests and. You're saying I'll probably like it. It's up my yeah. alley. Yeah. All right. Well, anyways, on the last episode, we tried to talk about some upper class drama that Washington dealt with during the winter of 77, 78. And I was a little fucked up. Sorry. Ryan was a little drunk and unprepared. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it's all right. This episode is all about Washington and his army trying to make it through that same winter. The British had retired to winter quarters, as British are often want to do. They're feeling pretty great about two consecutive victories against George and the Continental Army, Brandywine and Germantown. Their position in Philadelphia ensures a comfortable winter retreat. Chernow quotes a Hessian officer as writing, Assemblies, concerts, comedies, clubs, and the like make us forget that there is any war, save that it is a capital joke. It's hard to argue with him there. Oh, God, I need a drink. <laughs> and surely a tough winter would completely cripple this already ragtag army that can't even clothe itself, doesn't have shoes, is a bunch of losers, and uh, they're losers. Losers. So Valley Forge. Most Americans recognize the name somewhere in their heads. Many can't tell you much about its significance. Washington had limited choice for winter quarters. Mm-hmm. He was more or less pressured to remain in the Philadelphia area. Some dum-dums thought that he should even attack the British forces throughout that winter. Well, and and it's just so funny because that's so dumb. And we'll talk more about like why that was really dumb later. But they were not in it any becomes shape. Pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah, like they're like not in any shape to go ahead and like try to do a winter battle or any type of anything. It's a real, uh, it's only a flesh wound kind of scene. Valley Forge then seemed ideal. It's 20 miles northwest of Philadelphia. It provided high defense positions, which I saw some rebuilding of the battlements and quarters at Valley Forge National Park. It provided high defensive positions. True story. I've been there. Water, lots of timber and farms all around to beg for food. On paper, it doesn't sound too awful. Plus, it prevents the Redcoats from freely roaming around the valley, pillaging the local agriculture. It protects the Patriot forces. The Patriot. It protects. It protects the Patriots that were forced out of their homes in Philadelphia and creates a buffer from the recently homeless Continental Congress and Pennsylvania legislature now located in New York and Lancaster, respectively. Is it Lancaster or Lancaster? I think it's Lancaster. I'd say Lancaster. Yeah. 
The area itself, Valley Forge, was a small industrial and farming community, as you said, Justin. And yes, uh, there were forges. There was also a grist mill. Um, the highest point in the area was Mount Joy. Did you, did you go atop Mount Joy, Justin? I don't think so. No? Did you, could you mm-hmm. see Mount Joy from where you were? I don't know what the fuck Mount Joy is, to be honest. Really? So, uh, if you went to Washington's headquarters, uh, the Skykill River is to the north of you. Did you see that? Yes. And so, if you would have looked 180 degrees to the south of like this river, you would have that would have been Mount Joy right there. His house was directly between Mount Joy and the Skykill River. And there was a little creek that runs right down Mount Joy. It was right to the uh, west of the headquarters. You probably saw that as well. Hmm. No? So anyway. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to figure out where the fuck you're talking about. Really? Yeah. Yeah, Mount Joy is like... The- something different now. Perhaps. I don't know why they would have changed the name of that and not the Skykill River. But Mount Joy. So if you're looking at, hold on. Okay. Do you see what I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I was all up in that. <laughs> just playing all yeah, up I was, around. I was all I was all over that Joy Mountain. Right on. Uh so we're going to use like that little mountain as our reference point. So like I said, directly to the north of this is the Skykill River. Uh, and then following a line going due east off of Mount Joy. So if you're looking at a land map, if you go to the right, uh, there's a few more high ridges that run parallel to the Skykill River. And there's like a plain in between this uh, eastern line that runs off Mount Joy and the Skykill River. Uh, there are two main roads that ran through the camp. Uh, and right where those roads ran, they ran right in the middle of the Skykill River and this little outer defense slash uh, mountain range that ran off of Mount Joy. Uh, this little mountain range is exactly where all of uh, a majority of the forces were located. So. Mm, Sorry, I thought I had the number in there. So uh, about 15 of the brigades were actually on this outer line of defenses that kind of ran directly east of Mount Joy. Directly north of that, like I said, was actually where Washington's headquarters was. So that's where you were, and this is where the Isaac Potts house is. I thought this was interesting. In the book, Chernow, that that we use for our references uh, a lot of the times, Chernow described this as Isaac. He made it sound like Isaac Potts owned everything in this whole area. And that's not like true at all. Like that, that's absolutely not true. He actually, in the book, he says that he owned the iron forges that were there. He actually did not. He owned the grist mill and he owned a couple farms in the area. Um, his brothers actually owned those iron forges. So they were in his family, but they, he had actually had nothing to do with, he didn't make iron like that wasn't his deal. It was his father's deal and his brother's deal. 
He didn't really have anything to do with it. Most of this area at the time was farmland. And so there were a few trade roads that ran through the area, uh, but pretty much just all farmland. And the house that Isaac Potts owned, this farmer, and he was a, uh, owned the gross mill. Uh, he was a Quaker. They were all Quakers, which is kind of why, like, they didn't really have an alliance to one person or another. They're like, we just don't like war. So, like, we'll sell to whoever, you know what I mean? Like, kind of definitely opportunist. And so Isaac Potts was more of a patriot, kind of patriot leaning. I'm assuming he had some wrongs that he felt were uh, allowing him to kind of help out, I think, the patriot cause. But uh, George and his military family kind of just had these upper two uh, rooms that they slept in and they used the bottom part as kind of the uh, main headquarters for this uh, crazy ass winter that they're about to have and all these kind of wonderful characters that they're about to uh, meet. (laughs) Now for the depressing Valley Forge, we all probably don't know and love. There are some pretty famous paintings of George Washington at Valley Forge. You can Google that if you give a shit, but none of them really capture the bloody snow, horses dying, starving people very well. I think that the the most recognizable one is called Washington Reviewing His Troops at Valley Forge by W.T. Trago. George is sitting on a horse and looking at some ratchety ass looking dudes. I have a little painting of this hanging in my house, but I of course added some TIE fighters to it. And BB-8 is next to George Washington's horse. My girlfriend comes, and I'm not gonna go into that. The other famous one is of George doing the old Tebow stance on the ground next to his horse in the snow. He's being a good Christian, praying on bended knee to the God of shoes and blankets. Dude, can I just say, first, did you know that painting was not created until 1975? It's a, it's like a relatively new painting. Like America was in the midst of an evangelical revival. We just got out of the Nixon area and damn it. America needs a fucking like patriotic and religious leader. And then who are we going to fucking Washington? Who are we going to choose? We're a fucking George Washington. It makes me, I was laughing when, because when I was reading your notes on this, I was like, uh, it's like the song, like, I need a hero, right? Like, I need a hero 
You know, like, that's what America was looking for. So we're going to make this perfect painting of George fucking motherfucking Washington. Yeah, it's like uh, kneeling at Valley Forge. Why not? It's like Hulk Hogan beating Andre the Giant. Like, fuck that. (laughs) It's ridiculous. He's a real American. But George really isn't having that much prey time. He's not having much fun. He has modest quarters, a bed, but they're modest for a guy longing for Mount Vernon and losing a war. His aides slept on the floor all around him in the house of Zach Potts. What's worse is that George has most has lost. George has lost most of his luggage. Uh, is it Isaac Potts or is it Isaac Potts? I was uh, mispronouncing it on purpose for effect. Oh, oh, I, uh, I got very. I don't know because it is spelled very weird. In my, it's opinion. Isaac. Okay. It's Isaac. Come on, it's a it's a good Christian name. <sighs> What's worse is that George had lost most of his beloved luggage, and he only had one spoon. Oh, and the treasury is bankrupt. Oops. So George doesn't have his favorite socks. He doesn't have all his sparkly, you know, shit he designed. <laughs> so this is actually a great time to suffer and bond with your lowest of soldiers. His first order of business is to have a hut building contest. Winter was coming and you have and you want the housing of your troops to be built in the similar spirit of how preschool teachers trick their kids into cleaning up their toys. You make it a game, a competition. George offered 12 bucks to the first squad to complete their hut. And to solve the question of how to build efficient roofs, George offered $100 to whoever the fuck could figure that out. Well, it turns out that the hut sucked. 12 men had to fit into a 14 by 16 foot hut. I went inside the replicas there, small AF. (laughs) So I'm me, like millennial me, is already officially done with Valley Forge. I'm turncoating. I'm not tweeting. I'm angry. Get me out of here. I'm not getting all this disease. (laughs) I'm not going to, you know, eat horses or bark or whatever the fuck they're doing. (laughs) But hey, if you were an officer... You got wooden floors in your tiny hut because mud for the rest, like old dirty ass mud, dirty ass mud. What the fuck is wrong with me? (laughs) Mud for the rest. Hungry? Well, here's some here's some gross flour with probably like worms and shit in it and some water. Cook them together and give it a fun name like fire cakes. This is just like summer camp, but in the winter and nobody has shoes. And horrible. Just horrible. Dr. Albigence Waldo summed up the conditions nicely. Poor food, hard lodging, cold weather, fatigue, nasty clothes, nasty cookery, vomit half my time, smoke out of my sense, the devil's in it, I can't endure it. (laughs) There comes a bowl of beef soup 
full of burnt leaves and dirt, <laughs> sickish enough to make a Hector spew. Uh, this guy sounds like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's horrible. Everything is horrible. Nasty cookery. There comes a soldier. His bare feet are seen through his worn out shoes, his legs nearly naked from the tattered remains of an only pair of stockings. His breech is not sufficient to cover his nakedness, his shirt hanging in strings, his hair disheveled, his face meager, his, <laughs> his whole appearance pictures a person forsaken and discouraged. That Dr. Waldo has a way with words. <laughs> I don't like Dr. Waldo. Even if <laughs> they could get their hands on me. I'm joking, sorry. <laughs> Continue. Fun fact, Dr. Waldo, with all these descriptions, inspired the Where's Waldo series because of all the weird shit he would describe. No. The first Where's Waldo is actually uh, pictures of, of uh, nasty clothes and vomit <laughs> smoke, and you can't find this goofy guy who... Where's Waldo? Loved striped shirts and glasses <laughs> and had a stocking because he's rich. That's funny. So even if they could get their hands on more clothing, they didn't have any many op they didn't have many options for distribution. They needed to use men to pull wagons and carts like animals. Washington's goal that winter was first of all survivor survival. Second, have a force recognizable as an army to come out the other side. Lashes were given severely to anyone caught stealing food. Bite the bullet kind of comes from this whole idea of bite down on, on a bullet. We're going to whip you because you weren't satisfied with your fire cakes. The lack of clothing resulted in many frostbite amputations and some death. The biggest killer was, was disease, typhus, typhoid fever, pneumonia, dysentery, and scurvy were the real enemies in Valley Forge. 2,000 would die before the end. Martha joined George in February after the death of her BFF sister, Mary Ann Bassett. Ever the trooper, Martha organized the wives into knitting parties. Like, let's make some fucking blankets, ladies. Washington turns 46 in that same February. You know, President's Day in America when the banks are closed. Some junior officers managed to put on a play for the, that event, Cato, as we've mentioned, a very popular play for the American Revolution and one of George and one of George's faves. That night, he also allowed a little uh, fife and drum corps. Why not? Let's get let's get a little spirited up in this bitch, you know? Oh, but uh, gam like card games and dice games. Uh, definitely banned and you would get whipped for it. And that's why <laughs> they put the Valley Forge Casino and Resort. And <laughs> Valley Forge National Park. Oh, I just find that very funny. That's uh, funny. I'm grabbing a drink. Stand by. Okay. Sorry, my wife is just right there. I'm getting a drink now. What? Should I can't? 
Okay. My mouth is making mouth sounds. Sorry. It's like your mouth is making mouth sounds. Yeah, like I can just really hear my mouth when I open it. Sorry. I got the wet mouth. Anyway. So yeah, uh Valley Forge was not awesome for just about everyone. Uh unless you were someone who was, say, benefiting from a commission in the Continental Army, perhaps. Um, we have talked a bit before about the never-ending caravan of troops, specifically officers, that were coming from Europe, being sent by Franklin and Dean. Uh, Dean was over there basically just, like, giving everybody a military commission, like, yeah, fucking go over there. Let's, yeah, get on a boat. I promise you they're going to pay you. They're going to, it's going to be great. Get get on over there. It's going to be awesome. Uh, so I want to spend just a little bit talking about two of uh, f- these foreign men that Dean and Franklin kind of had a hand in sending over. Uh, there was actually a point in time where, and I'll kind of talk about this a little bit more later, but there was a time when Congress stopped accepting commissions from Dean. So Dean kind of did have a limited ability in Franklin uh, to issue commissions, but they did it so often and to so many people, it would have absolutely bankrupt the Congress. I mean, they just did not have any type of capital to be paying all these foreign officers and they did need trained officers and trained men america like the patriots didn't really have that many highly trained skilled officers that had fought before ever in a war so or at least in a war of a scale this size so one that we have talked about before one of these guys we've talked about before is the handsome young and handsome sexy ever so handsome lafayette and damn i i just have to say seriously I read this book about Lafayette last week, and it was uh, called Lafayette in the Somewhat United States by Sarah Vowell. And it's a really simple read. She, it's, it's more of a book I would recommend for anyone who's listening to this show and just finds it, history interesting because she is not a historian. She doesn't write from a historian's perspective, but she just tells a lot of stories uh, and just basically pulls a lot of like letters and all this and that out. So she talks specifically, and I love this about how Lafayette left his, he was 19. Both of his parents had died. And so he had a bunch of money. He, he had uh, inherited a lot of money. He was married off to this girl of a wealthy family and his dad I mean, her dad kind of accepted him as like a a son figure, you know, definitely a son-in-law, but uh, also was helping him up in the military ranks. He was uh, a politician and a military uh, guy as well. And so it's hilarious because they basically told him that he couldn't come. And France at this point, because so many people were coming over from France to U.S. and helping that France was really worried that Britain was going to think they were actually sending all these guys over there and would start a war directly with France. And France really could not handle that at this point in time. They were kind of decimated after the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War. Anyway, Lafayette, two two quotes. 
in this book that I read from Sarah Val really stuck out to me. Uh, Lafayette's 19, left his 19-year-old wife, defied France and all of its edicts to not come over to the U.S. and participate in this war, aggravating Britain. And he's just like, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to fucking go. I'm going to do it. I have all this money. I'm going to buy a boat. I'm going, I'm leaving my pregnant 19 year old wife with our second child. And I'm just going, and he's writing to her from the ship as he's finally setting sail to the United States. And he writes this quote, the welfare of America is intimately bound with the happiness of humanity. She is going to become the deser- she is going to become the deserving and sure refuge of virtue, of honesty, of tolerance, of equality, and of tranquil liberty. And the second quote that this dude is so poetic, and this is in the same letter to his wife. Uh, in coming as a friend to offer my service to this intriguing republic, I bring to it only my frankness and my goodwill. No ambition, no self-interest. In working for my glory, I work for their happiness. Like, dude, those are fucking deep quotes. It, it kind of makes me, it like stirs up this patriotic feeling inside of me because I was like, oh shit. Like, if this is what America is to be, and this is what he thought he was actually fighting for. I mean, yeah, he was trying to sell his wife on the idea of what he was doing. And yes, he wanted some military glory, but he really, really believed in the United States. And sorry, well, in the patriotic cause, in the idea of a republic, really, it was what he sold the Congress on. The He he really was like, I just want to give my services to a republic, not like to the patriotic cause. So they really were into him as well. And he's someone that eventually found a commission with George Washington. And we know it became intimately involved, more like a very much of a son figure to George Washington. But uh, I think that he was able to do that because he was truly someone that was just here to learn and kind of serve and was just loving it. Like I, he, even though these were crazy hard times at Valley Forge, he was just absolutely into it. Right. Like, I think this is what he was dreaming of when he thought of war. And again, he was an officer, so he had it a little bit better than say the troops sleeping in the fucking dirt. But you know, what are you going to do? Uh, and I, I read another book this week and it was absolutely fantastic. And it was called the drill master of Valley forge by uh, a guy named Paul Lockhart. The subtitle of it is the Baron to Steuben and the making of the American army. And it's really also this- kind of sounds like a porn title. <laughs> the drill master of Valley forge. <laughs> I, oh, if that's not a real thing, it should be. Justin, I think we've just found an untapped market. I really do. Anyway, sorry. I, I'm, I'm totally distracted now by that thought. Porn period pieces. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be thinking about that. I think somebody minute. beat us to the punch, but that's just my guess. <laughs> so Baron von Steuben, fucking absolutely fascinating fascinating guy. Washington wasn't all about having a bunch of foreigners in his army, just as Congress didn't want to pay a bunch of foreigners to be in an army. So 
the fact that Lafayette found a way into Washington's heart and enter Baron von Steuben, that a guy like this would eventually become someone that Washington just absolutely fully trusted and adored is fascinating because this guy is, is he's as Europe as Europe gets. I mean, like Baron von Steuben, like Lafayette, had an incredibly sizable name. His full name as us Americans knew him was Friedrich Wilhelm August Heinrich Ferdinand Steuben. He actually uh, had a couple, he had a different name and then he changed his name to, to this. But uh, we have talked about the Baron before. We joked in an earlier episode that he wasn't really a Baron and that he was just, he, he would just mercilessly yell and drill these troops at Valley Forge. However, uh, I, I do have a bone to pick with Chernow about his insistence that the Baron was not actually a Baron because um, he actually was. That's fired. He was a Baron. So Baron von Steuben, he, he was from Prussia. Uh, and Prussia is more like modern day Germany, right? So back in the day, Prussia was a bunch of tiny state countries that were under like the Prussian name. There was a king, but the nobles basically did whatever the hell they wanted. But in th- these countries were super tiny, like, like, I mean, the size of like Connecticut, tiny, like just very, but there was a whole bunch of them. And uh, the Baron was part of what was called the Junker class or the Yunker class. Uh, it's spelled Junker, pronounced Yunker. Uh, and roughly translated into French, the, the Yunker status would actually be a baron status. It's like the lowest kind of royal noble, not, not, not royal, but more noble status, right? So he was, he was a baron. Now, where... Baron von Steuben was from being a baron didn't really entitle you to much. You weren't better off than anyone else. So even though Steuben, yeah, let's be honest, the title baron, yeah, it's not like a big deal. Not, like, yeah, there's a red baron who makes <laughs> frozen pizzas. It's not, you know, Chernow's just being all up in his ass in his ivory tower and his, you know, best time, best uh, New York bestseller books that he writes you know just you know well, stop being such a snob no I'm not, i mean i'm not saying that but i'm just saying like it is funny that he's making jokes dum-dum he said i know but it is like it it bump it it bothers me like since i read some other books and kind of did some deeper digging that he was like isaac potts owned the forges and it's like well that's an oversimplification because his family actually did and if you're going to write a book that's like two thousand fucking pages ron Chernow on notice Ron Chernow, I'm putting you on notice. He's never going to come on this show. You're first. So the Baron was a Baron. He did come from extremely humble origins. He was not really highly educated. He was about as educated as George Washington was, uh, although he received a much more formal education, but he, he still only had a couple years of it. Like he didn't have a full, complete uh, high education. He was surprisingly simple. And I'll kind of touch a little bit more on why that's important, like why his simple origins, even though he was the quotes baron, 
why his simple origins kind of helped him win over people. Right. So um, also just for reference, like I was saying, this, uh, this book, this, all this information does come from the, the drill master of Valley forge by Paul Lockhart. Just want to make sure that we give credit where credit's due. And it did provide a great, like seriously awesome in-depth look at the Baron. Um, a lot of the information that he got from this book came from the diaries of John Lawrence and John Chernow uses a lot of John Lawrence as well in his referencing of Valley Forge because he was the son of Henry Lawrence and Henry Lawrence was the president of the Continental Congress. We've, we've kind of touched on this before, but I just want to recap and John fucking loved the Baron, right? Henry Lawrence also liked the Baron and that kind of helped usher his position into uh, this area. So anyway, the Baron is from Prussia um, and believe it or not, contrary to popular belief, the British army, and I found this interesting, hold on. Mm. Believe it or not, I found this fascinating. The British army was not like by far, not the biggest and baddest in the world. Their, their Navy was, uh, but not by a long shot were they, but I mean, like I said, they have a huge Navy their infantry was not on par with everyone else, though. The Prussian army was fucking massive. It was huge. Absolutely huge. It was the biggest. It was the best. Uh, honestly, these guys deserved a trump size heap of praise. Uh, the conglomerate of the states, so like all these uh, country states, spent about two-thirds of their entire budget on the army, which is a like that's staggering. So all the money that everybody made that they collected from taxes, all this went straight to their army. The King of Prussia at the time was obsessed with building this huge professional military. Absolutely obsessed. He did away with the Royal court of uh, pussies that were established by his forebears and replaced them with a bunch of military officers. He's like, fucking get out of here. You fancies. And like, I want all these military people at, up in here, right? Like, I want to get to know all the military folks. He, he was all, he knew the best generals, is what you're saying. He knew the, I he know the best generals. The generals. Yeah, but he kind of did. And the funny thing is, uh, he would always wear military attire. Like, previously in the court, like it was all about wearing fancy clothes, right? But then it, when this guy, uh, Frederick the Great, took over, he was all about just everybody wearing military uniforms all the time. And it was a, a complete military culture. He absolutely like overnight redid the culture of Prussia into this like, it, like highly advanced military culture that was just like spending shit tons of money on military stuff. Um, one of the anecdotes that tells just how bad this military was, the infantrymen were trained to load and fire four rounds per minute. This is back in like the flintlock days where you would load your gunpowder and bullets separately. So not only could they load and fire four rounds per minute, they could do it while marching forwards or backwards and stay in perfect formation while doing it. I mean, like they would pivot and turn and be pinwheeling and like they would be three rows deep, just like turning all around the battlefield and firing four rounds per minute, no matter what, like. That's insane. It's like a, lit a literally a moving like Gatling gun. Like just that's wild to me. Um, Steuben grew up in a military home. His father was a military man, an engineer lieutenant. 
Uh, Steuben himself served in the military, although his highest rank was only captain. That is still quite an accomplishment in an army as big and professional and as well-funded as the Prussian army. And Steuben was even recognized by and received special attention in military training from Frederick the Great. So he wasn't like he wasn't just some guy that was in the military. He was some guy that was in a military family that grew up in a military culture that was noticed by Frederick the Great himself, the man obsessed with military. Something that was interesting in some of the other research that I did outside of Ron Chernow's book, Frederick the Great's son, uh, Frederick II, was known to fancy men. Like that was not, back in the Prussian army, homosexuality was not like okay, but it was also acknowledged as like a thing, right? And so it wasn't a big deal. And so Frederick II being perhaps a little uh, into men wasn't that big of a deal. And the Baron in younger years was noted to be handsome. So at an earlier age, it's suggested that perhaps the Baron was enlisted in the military affairs, not strictly because he was good at being a military guy, but because, although he was, um, but because he was handsome and perhaps had a fling with Frederick II. And so I found that fucking fascinating. And I'll dig a little bit more into that in a minute here. But uh, yeah, I found that interesting. But overall, my point is the man had credentials to serve in a military. And I I just think that Chernow downplays that. Like Chernow's like, he wasn't a baron. He was this like military guy from Prussia, but like, who cares? Like anybody could have come from there. And it's just like, no, like he actually was quite like a unique person and a unique individual from a very unique military background. Um, unfortunately, during this time for Steuben, uh, the Germans kind of after he got accepted into the King's class, the Germans kind of started to experience, well, the the Prussians started to experience Russia. I mean, not Russia, Europe was experiencing relative peace after the Seven Years' War. Like I said earlier, uh, not a lot of people wanted to invest a lot of money in a war. So Europe was kind of calming down and uh, Steuben was kind of sent off into a far remote corner of the empire. And eventually he was excused from service altogether. He did kind of have a falling out with Frederick II and Frederick the Great in the court, but we don't really know if that's why he was kind of sent out to that post or not. Anyway, he ends up making his way. uh, Oh, he sorry. He took some time off to go soul searching and ends up in the service of another rural court in Prussia, but ends up back in France and begins to search for another job. He ends up meeting with Franklin and Dean around this time. And Dean was really interested in hiring him. But when he went to Franklin and Dean's uh, house in France, Franklin basically yelled at him and was like, there's no way that we're going to pay you 
to be a military officer. We have too many military officers. There's nothing special about you. Go fuck off. Like, get the hell out of here. And Dean's like, my bad. So sorry. Like, yeah, we really can't afford to pay you for real, though. So sorry. And that was kind of unfortunate because the stupid had kind of headed to France with this idea of possibly meeting with Dean. He kind of heard that maybe America had a the United States. He, the Patriots had a uh, a spot for him and the need for a man of his talents. And so he was like super disappointed. So he, while in France at, at this exact time, hears of another offer to go work for a royal French family. I mean, a royal uh, German Prussian family. And like on his way to there, the courts in Prussia started circulating a rumor that he actually was like a boy lover. As in, like, he had, while he was in the military, like, multiple younger officers that were, like, his boy lovers. And although it wasn't that big of a deal, like, as rumors started to spread, like, he just felt like he couldn't go back. So in a last-ditch effort, he's like, fuck. He turned right back around, goes to France, uh, goes back to France, goes to Franklin, goes to Dean and says, all right. I'm basically willing to do whatever it takes to go serve in, uh, you know, the, the military for the Patriots. Like I'll do whatever. And so they like, uh, Franklin and Dean kind of concoct this story for Congress because they're like, all right, we want you to get paid. We don't want you to take this job and feel like we're not going to pay you. However, we have to convince the Congress to accept you into the military. So we're going to definitely make sure we mention that you're this baron, that you're this guy that has had multiple military uh, experiences and that you're highly regarded in, in Europe. And you've had these uh, offers to go serve elsewhere, but you really want to come serve America. And they trained him in who he was going to meet and how he should kind of encounter them and how he should talk to them. So when he comes over to the United States, when he comes, why do I keep saying that? When he comes over to the colonies, he uh, goes to talk to Congress. He takes a couple days. He kind of has this troop of people with him. He actually, to kind of make him seem more legitimate, he traveled with three other people, which is like crazy to Very me. Very curly and mo. Yeah, exactly. Well, one of them was a dog. So he really traveled with two other people and a dog. Um, both of these people that he traveled with were basically to translate because he couldn't speak English. He tried, but ultimately he he never really learned a grasp, a firm grasp of the, uh, the English language until later. Um, so I can only imagine what it was like hopping on a boat, feeling like you have no opportunities for a job in Europe knowing that you probably aren't going to get paid for a while while over in the U.S. and having all of your expenses paid for by some rich French dudes who wanted to sponsor the war but knew they couldn't officially get involved. So basically they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll pay for your trip over there, but that's about all we can afford. And hey, by the way, take my nephew with you. He speaks really good English. He's 19. He's going to have a really good time. Like He'll be your military family. So the Baron came over to the colonies with a military family, went to go meet Congress. Um, specifically, 
really hit it off with Henry Lawrence. And actually, um, he really hit it off with, uh, oh, who was Washington's rival at the time? Why can't I think of his name? For the life of me. Kanye? No. Uh, part, part of that. The, he, Charles Lee? No, he was the head of the, the war cabinet. Horatio, sorry. Uh, Horatio. Gates? Yeah. No. Horatio Gates is right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Oh my God, I feel so dumb. Fuck. Horatio Gates is correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Yeah, Horatio. Horatio, Horatio Gates, Gates, Benedict Arnold. Name. Whoa. Why is music playing? Stop. Oh my God. My, I'm, anyway, it's fuck. My brain. So he, so the Baron and Horatio Gates hit it off immediately. Like they loved one another. And actually, when, as soon as the Baron gets into town to meet with Congress, uh, Horatio's like, hey, I want you to stay at my house. And the Baron, because he was trained, knew that though, that George Washington, that he had to convince George Washington, really, that he was going to serve. So he was coached by Franklin to kind of keep his distance to Horatio Gates, uh, even though Horatio was kind of the guy that would ultimately lobby for a position for him anyway. So it's like this very interesting, he had to play very interesting politics uh, there. So he ended up staying at somebody else's house, but uh, Horatio Gates really loved him. But one of the reasons that it's important that Henry Lawrence liked him was because Henry Lawrence's son, John Lawrence, was serving as the aide-de-camp to Washington. And so he knew that if he could sell his son kind of even uh, on the Baron, then and John Lawrence might have also liked the men folk. Is that true? Yeah. Because that would make even more sense because seriously, like I, the, the Baron was, he never married. Like he had never had really even many love interest in my opinion, like from kind of what I've gathered, what I've read so far. So um, I mean, he was he was smitten. He was smitten towards women, as in he liked to play with them as far as like in the court and like he knew the game. Right. But I don't think he was into them. Um, so anyway, he comes over, talks to Congress. Congress is like, wow, we really can't pay you. And he's like, I all I need is my travel expenses reimbursed and positions for my family, my military family, my aide de camps. Um, and you know, just pay for our travel, get us there and we'll serve. No problem. I don't even want to take your money. I just want to serve a Republic. Like I really believe. And again, this is basically all translated from French because he doesn't speak very good English. So he, he just has basically a bunch of letters that he's giving to people that were translated by, uh, one of the guys that was traveling with him. And what sorry go ahead <laughs> so the baron ends up making his way to meet george washington at valley forge and the baron was ultimately let down by his initial impression of george washington because george washington rode out with his family they met the baron on the road into valley forge and 
he had heard, obviously, by this point, a lot about the Baron. It became well known who this man was. They were printing about him in the newspapers. Like he was this French high nobleman that was coming over to help save America. And it was obviously more uh, propaganda than it was truth. But there was some truth to it. You know, he just wasn't a high wealth nobleman. He was a guy that had to escape and basically come over here. But he was very well qualified. Uh, and so George Washington knew that, met him on the road, and just was kind of like, hey, thanks for coming. And then they all just rode back into Valley Forge together, and there was really no pomp or circumstance. And this, the Baron was really let down by this uh, initial impression. Uh, they got to Valley Forge. He was kind of just assigned, George didn't really know what to do with him, so he kind of just assigned him to get to know the camp walk around the camp, f- figure out where you think that you'll fit in and we'll kind of talk about it, you know? And the Baron's impressions of camp are much like the doctor's impressions of the camp. And he's like, this is fucked up. Like, Which doctor? David Tennant? <laughs> no, the doctor who you quoted earlier. Oh, uh, Waldo? Yep. Uh. Doctor, where's Waldo? Um, so... He, he thought the camp was really fucked up, but ha- he was excited to be back in military service, believe it or not. Like he'd kind of been hobnobbing around France for a little bit. He really hadn't had a uh, battle for years. And so he would write in his journals about how he loved the smell of the camp again and how he loved the sound of the men and just the overall atmosphere and environment. Like for him, it wasn't terrible like it wasn't ideal and it was no european military camp and everyone was kind of like naked right but he knew that there was this reality to war and he was comfortable with it he had seen it before and so he set about going to camp going around the camp getting to know the guys and this was really really odd for the soldiers because washington would distance himself from the simple men his, his basic soldiers. And so he expected his officers to kind of do the same. And in the Prussian army, that's not how it worked. All the officers actually started underneath of a regular soldier, as far as the soldiers would direct what this future officer was going to do. So they would actually get to know what their men were doing. So it's, it's, easy to see how Baron von Steuben would come over here and immediately when he was trying to figure out who this army was, would go to the lowest man and figure out, Hey, what are you guys doing? He would go into their huts and tents and he would laugh with them. And he would like like, the opposite of what you do in prison. You find the biggest, strongest man. (laughs) You drop your soap directly in front of him. Yes. But you know, the Baron set out getting to know all these men and he didn't really know how he was going to fit in at all. Like he had no idea. And eventually Washington was like, all right, these motherfuckers need to be trained. I want you to fucking train the shit out of them. All right. Baron von Steuben, John Lawrence really likes you. He says, you're great. He says, you're hot stuff. He says he likes that twinkle in your eye. Why don't you get on out there to those uh, parade grounds between the Skykill River and Mount Joy there 
and just fucking parade the shit out of these motherfuckers. And the Baron thought to himself, all right, I can do this. I really feel confident that I have this ability. And no, he actually didn't think that at all. He started freaking out because he's like, I don't fucking know how I'm going to do this. This is a really easy thing to do. Uh, but I, I don't think I can do this. And uh, by the way, speaking of Mr. Conway, the Conway Cabal Conway, uh, he was the inspector general of the military at this time, right? The, the answer is yes. Oh, indeed. Yeah. So he was the inspector general of the military at this time. Uh, Washington knew that he wanted Green to be uh, basically in charge of all the goods. Like he was, he was going to be, Oh, what's the, what's the name? Double of dipping, Ryan. What? You're double dipping into the last episode. Did I really? Oh, I'm so sorry. Let's get concise. Get right to the, the trainage and the manual and let's close this bitch out. Copy that. So the Baron begins to train the men. He initially gets a bunch of officers together and he realizes that if he can train He's using top-down economics here. If he can train the top, then it'll trickle down, right? So he begins to train these officers. And this actually is a really good point of like the bond of bonding for all the men. Every single morning, he wakes up. He's he's up at like the fucking crack of dawn. He's writing his manual for the day. So like he's he's gonna write this manual for how to train the army, but he, he has to totally do it on the fly. So he's like, Fuck all the niceties. Basically, these men don't need to figure out how to handle a gun. They need to figure out how to move in formation. This is the number one most important thing. So very first day, he goes out there. He has all these officers. He has he turns he gets a group of 20 of them together and he just starts marching them around the campground, a march around the parade ground. And every single time they fuck up, every single time they're out of step, this guy in a bunch of different languages just starts swearing, just starts cussing, screaming, yelling, stomping. He's putting on this theater and he he's doing it on purpose. He part of it is he's angry, but part of it is is this motivation, right? Like he wants to motivate these guys to fucking be the best that they can be. So he's going to get in their face. He's going to turn them. He's going to move them. He's going to yell at them if they're fucking up. I mean, he is like getting into it. And all of the men up on the hill that are kind of watching their officers being trained are laughing. Like they think that this is fucking hilarious. And so it kind of provided this levity in the camp, but also because he was yelling at them, these men actually wanted to do better. And so they took it to heart and they got better and they got better. And then, so he started training every single day he'd get up and he'd start training some different portion of some march, some move, some way to, and eventually he'd get a little bit into handling the gun, putting on a bayonet, feeling comfortable moving with it. But most importantly, it was getting into these formations and he started very small. And eventually over time, over this next like month, they begin to train as full groups, as a full army on the battlefield, uh, on this parade ground. And I just think that that's he did so much in so little time and just taught these men how to move and move quickly. The biggest and kind of top top off of this whole thing was on May 6th. Uh, France decides that they're going to kind of start getting into this thing. Right. So we have 
Washington stages the celebration of this French treaty being signed and this declaration of war against Britain, essentially. And the Baron decides that the best way to show off how his military can work is this, and it's you de jour, sweep of double rows of soldiers, everyone's chanting, and these men are moving in formation and shooting their guns off in perfect formation in lockstep, and not one person misfired. There's just this like this awesome movement and pinwheeling and getting into and out of formation on the battleground. And there's just this feeling of like, all right, we have France in it now. We feel trained. We're getting there. We can move forward. You know, like, so there's just awesome air about the camp, I think. And everyone is super excited, but also like super afraid because like, they're kind of learning and they're cementing themselves into this army, this actual real army that can move as one. They've had hardships. They're facing, you know, this horrible winter. But then here comes this guy that is able to bring them levity and like actually train them. And he, he was like, he was a fucking comic. I just, I would love to have been there while he was, was just mercilessly yelling. It probably felt a lot like, you know, opening a Cold Stone creamy, creamery for the first day. You know, you're kind of, you've been trained on the songs. Are you going to forget some of the songs <laughs> and not get good tips? Are you going to fuck up on the toppings? And, you know, we'll see over the next couple episodes if America can, you know, sing the songs for the tips get the gummy bears and the, the Oreo onto the, the ice cream or what have you and become its own. Are chain. you hungry? No. <laughs> oh, I'm always hungry. <laughs> well, that's probably a good spot to wrap her up. Do you have anything you want to add to that? Did I, did I miss anything? Nope. Right on. On the next episode of POTUS Life, we will be talking about more George Washington. Lots of George Washington. George Washington all the time. GeorgeWashington.com. That's actually not ours. George Washington forever. Rate and review us on uh, whatever platform you listen on. And uh, thanks for giving us a listen. Yeah. Bye. Peace be with you. Bye. All right, but I got a cast. Let me watch. Bye. Washington, Washington, six foot eight weighs a fucking ton. Opponents beware, opponents beware. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Let me lay it on the line, he had two on the vine I mean two sets of testicles, so divine On a horse made of crystal, he patrolled the land With the mason ring and trouser in his perfect hands Here comes George, in control Women dug his snuff and his gallant stroll Eight opponents' brains And invented cocaine He's coming, he's coming, he's coming Washington